Welcome to the first Agony Agent Roundtable. Um, it's so lovely to have you here. Like I, uh, I've met Rebecca. I've met Wally once in a video call, and every time it's like uh, you know you, you're you're lovely folks, and you also know a great deal about this industry. Um, so you know we've got. Uh, a wealth of crowdsourced questions. People have sent questions in with their genuine needs. Uh, they're looking for advice and information how to get ahead in conversational AI. And I can't wait to hear what you have to say in response to those questions. However, first, it would be nice to have some introductions, just in case anyone's not heard of you, uh, which I can't believe, <laughs> but it, it's possible. It's possible. So perhaps, uh, Rebecca, could you go first and introduce yourself for the audience, please? Yeah, thanks, Ben. Um, I'm Rebecca Evanho. I have been a conversation designer for a mere 11 years. I think Wally uh, has... Uh, bested me there. Uh, but I am a co-author of the book Conversations with Things, which is about conversation design. <laughs> and the fact that Wally has the book is such an honor. Um, yeah, so I've, I've been doing, you know, work on chatbots and voice bots and simulations and all kinds of stuff. Um, so I have some pretty good breadth and depth that I'm happy to loan to this conversation. Lovely. Thank you. Wally, please. Okay, well, I'll tell you a little story. Um, a long time ago, I was a record producer, mostly working in England. And I had this idea to make a sort of choose-your-own-adventure opera where you could interrogate characters and they would change their plot points and stuff. And I heard about this company called Nuance that was making speech recognition. And I thought, wow, this is great. And rather than me leveraging the technology, which was not ready at the time, I ended up working at Nuance for some bizarre reason and then started a consultancy. This was 1999. So then started a consultancy called Voice Partners. And we worked for, you know, until I joined Google, I guess about six years ago, um, we were doing, you know, what was conversational design in those days. Um, I joined Google as part of the personality team to define the, persona of Google Assistant, and then went on to all kinds of other stuff within the assistant organization. But that's uh, that's me. And I, I, I just want to give another plug for Rebecca's book, which is really excellent. So there you go. And um, back to you, Ben. Well, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Conversations with Things, I think, is the book that gets referenced most of the time. You know, there's, of course, Kathy Pearl's got a great book as well. These are These are the two that I hear about most often, but yeah, I I look at conversations with things like reference it practically every day at work. Great, great it's book. It's very nice to write out too. Yeah, I mean, we couldn't be happier with the book's reception. And also you can see this like column of books to my left. There are lots right. of books. Uh, I'm a book nerd, like a lot of our, our community. Um, so I'm, I'm really proud to like have a contribution to the wealth of kind of UX uh, knowledge that's out there. And I would just add that there's, there's the, the first book of its kind that I've ever seen was when I was at Nuance, James Jangola, Michael Cohen, and Jennifer Baloff put out um, voice user interface design, um, which is 
sort of the inverse of Kathy's title. Um, and this was way back, but it, it's really the seminal kind of tome around a lot of the, the reasons for this stuff. So it's worth trying to pick up if you can as well. And obviously Kathy's book has been really influential. So yeah. yeah. Plus one yeah. to both of those. Those are the first, I think I read those books before I met any other conversation designer in person. So they were really like my first um, teachers <laughs> back in the days. Cause I, you know, that it's amazing now that we have this community and we have these incredible connections um, because when I got started, I, w- I was alone. I didn't know anybody else who had that job. And w- I was at a startup and we were just trying to do our best. And then when I figured out there were books about it, <laughs> it was like, okay, now I have some information and I can fail a little bit less. Um, but now there's just so much more that's known. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's definitely changing, isn't it? Um, and so much more that's not known. <laughs> yes, Absolutely. <laughs> And that's it. Exactly, exactly. As we progress deeper, more questions arise, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so on that note, I mean, you're already sharing great stuff, speaking about books that everyone should get a copy of. Um, but maybe we could start with the crowdsourced questions. Um, so first up, and you know, this is, it's a round table, please. Um, anyone speak uh, when when they've got something they want to share, but I've assigned these questions to each of you just to to give this a bit of structure so first up wally please um we've actually there were two people who sent in similar questions related to getting started so to kind of summarize their point it was essentially along the lines of i want to get started in conversational ai now how should i do that well very good question. Very timely after the conversation we just had. Um, well, one of the things is it, it, it has a lot to do with where you're coming from. So if you're technical, if you're a technical resource somewhere, um, you've got to get your arms around how language works and why we care about how language works. And um, this also feeds into other questions. Well, I'll keep it, keep it clear. Um, If you want to get started and you want to understand it, first of all, I would say, obviously, you already have an account with ChatGPT or other. Um, You already have an account with VoiceFlow or other. And you're playing around with things and you're you're going, okay, I'm going to make a I'm going to make a chat bot that can tell me when the kettle's boiled or something. And you just start making stuff and experiment and then look at best in class things that you can find out there. Um, but I would, and, and obviously I would read the books that you can find. There is this, you know, I'm sure that, you know, um, Ben, you can put a list up or something of all these wonderful resources, but nothing, none of the information has been lost over the last 15 years, whatever it was. Um, it's all just been additive. And, um, you know, this Charles Jankowski wrote a book. Um, I mean, there's, there's some wonderful references out there. Um, in terms of how you actually get started working in it, um, something that I'm surprised about is how people are promoting themselves as conversational AI designers because it's such a new field. 
And a lot of people are just trying to pile in as prompt engineers, you know, prompt engineers. I made a very sarcastic comment, which I regret now, which is when I said that that prompt engineers were conversation designers fixing their LinkedIn description. <laughs> but 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 I, I, I think I think prompt engineering needs a lot of understanding of language and needs a lot of understanding of how we form thoughts in conversation design. Um, because what you're doing is you're in, it's, it's like you're a teacher and you're instructing somebody else how to do the job of conversation design and you want them to do it really well. So you have to know how to do that. So they, that, that, yeah, I think, I think that's pretty much it. Yeah. Super. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Rebecca, is there oh, anything? Can I just add one thing? Of course. There, you can get some training. Um, and I, I, I would just give a plug for um, CDI, um, mm -hmm. Conversation Design Institute. Um, they do some really good courses. It's worth checking out. Super. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, that's that's actually the first course I did. It went yeah. Back when it was RoboCopy. Yeah, yeah. Back when it was oh, wow. RoboCopy. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah super. Great advice. Thank you. And Rebecca, is there anything you'd add? Yeah. Yeah, I agree with everything Wally's saying, and I would kind of uh, double click. Um, he said, experiment, play around with things. And I think it's also really important to practice like evaluating all of this talking stuff around us, right? So um, I teach conversation design in a graduate program, so it's not like open to the public. But a lot of the stuff I do with my students is have them do a task with Alexa, do a task with Google Assistant, do a task with Siri. How were they different? How were they the same? What was effective? Ask Siri something on your laptop and then the same thing on your phone and see the multimodal difference. Um, so those kinds of things uh, are, are really great. And you can also add those to your portfolio. Like I wrote an evaluation of some experiments I tried with this bot. Um, and here's what I observed, like practicing that critical thinking pros and cons evaluation part of design, I think is no matter where you settle, whether you're more technical, whether you're um, more in the UX realm, wherever you are, practicing that evaluation brain, I think is kind of the number one meta skill that we need. That's great. And you're already making your portfolio if you start there, even before you've actually built something. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Super. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. So next question, please, Rebecca. Um, I'll read out the full question that we received. Um, so this is from Binish Balakrishnan. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Um, what would be the best strategy for customers when they don't have enough training data for conversational AI projects? This is such a good and interesting question. And it is a question that I've had my own experiences with being at different startups and early stage projects. Um, so we know there's like kind of a chicken and egg problem where we want our prototypes to work well enough to have effective testing sessions, but we need training data to do that. But we know we get the training data from the testing. So it's sort of like a circular problem. Um, yeah. Generally, the, the classics are any kind of transcript, especially if it's a service bot. If you have human to human conversations that you have transcripts for or you have chat logs, that can always be your basis. Um, if those don't exist or it's something that doesn't a conversation people haven't had yet, like you are talking to a, a lamp or something like that, where you just, there really just isn't precedent. 
Um, you can make prototypes that are specifically for not usability testing, but for gathering utterances. So let's say you want to build a bot that answers tons of questions, um, but you really need to figure out like what intents you need to cover, for example. You can make a bot that just asks like one question, like how can I help or what would you like to do or, you know, that that open ended question. And then um, you can just use that prototype specifically for generating utterances, like make the teeny tiniest little atom sized bot that you can and just use it for generating utterances. Or, I mean, you can do text based versions of this as well, just like whatever you can do to get um, some data with some fidelity is going to help you get started. But then we also have to understand that like we can move from simple prototypes to more complex prototypes to like actually testing the product and increase the fidelity of our training data as we go. So, I mean, it, it's a long road, but there's nothing more important in your bot than the training data, how it's trained. Even if you're working with an LLM, the layers of training you add onto the LLM are really essential, right? So um, I, Weirdly think that a lot of companies shortcut that training data piece, which is so wild to me because it's like, if the bot doesn't understand people, it literally doesn't work. So it yeah. like, you know, um, but yeah, but basically you can just make these simple prototypes and try to go from there. Um, more testing is always better. Um, and I'll hand it off to Wally to see if you have any, any uh, innovative things that you've tried over the years. Wow. Um, that's a very good answer that you just gave. But I would, I would, the thing I would suggest is when you're scoping, and this goes back to requirements, understand how far down the long trail you want to go and really understand that, you know, the 80, 20 or 90, 10 rule is going to apply. Um, I worked um, internally in self-service at a, 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 a retailer. Mm -hmm. And um, we had maybe 12 intents that covered 90% of what was going on. And everything else was just like, oh, I have a hangnail. What do I do about it? Um, so, you know, so I would, I would say in, in, in the collection, limit yourself a little bit in terms of what you're actually solving for, just to make sure that you're not overwhelming yourself. Um, I don't know. That's all I would add. I think, I think, I think that was a great answer. So, yeah, no, perfect. Perfect. I feel like any of these, we could develop much further, but it's nice. Like you're given such wonderfully short and sweet answers. So, and we've, <laughs> we've got a lot of questions, so I'll, I'll move on. Um, the next one is again for Rebecca. So we were asked, uh, should you have a bot per channel? This is actually an anonymous asker. Um, and they said, for example, can the same bot service and chat at the same time? I think it's quite an open question, right? Um, mm -hmm. How do you feel about that one? Yeah, I'll give my, I'll give my preamble. Um, when you're participating in conversation through a screen, so you're inputting typed text, um, and you're reading text, that's a different cognitive process than speaking out loud. So as a designer, if I'm doing the best that I can, I'm making different decisions for those two things. Mm -hmm. um, when we have a visual interface, we can rely on 
buttons and menus. And even like I've worked on a bot where we made some custom checkboxes to input rather than making people type stuff. So um, those things can help, right? We can make, take advantage of the medium that we're, or the modality that we're using. Uh, But I also know that very practically a business wants to look for like reusable pieces. And I do think there are, we, we want a voice channel and a chat channel to have a relationship. We want them to feel like high quality service experiences that align with the brand, right? So um, some of those reusable pieces can be, not always, but these are places you can look, um, training data, potentially, if they're not always the same, but you might be looking for similarities in the kinds of inputs you're getting in in the voice and the chat channels. Um, and then you can also, like if you have legally approved language or branded language, uh, potentially um, those kind of components can be reused. And usually I would always recommend like having a style guide that governs both where, where both can be consistent. But I do think businesses really want to just use one base for everything. And I don't think that results in the best experience in either channel, but I don't know. I, people see it lots of different ways. And Wally, I'm sure you worked on tons of service stuff. So you probably have a point of view on this. No, I mean, I, I, I think the thing that, that pops out for me in the last couple of years is um, research around chat, particularly um, about how formal or informal chat is and how people expect chat to be. And I think to, to, to your point, Rebecca, about style guides, um, I would also emphasize um, the persona and make sure that it's consistent between the channels, even though the, the, the content might be slightly different. I mean, I was amazed. I didn't know this, but um, if you put a period at the end of a sentence in chat, it's considered overly formal in a lot of areas. It's considered to be abrupt and distancing. I thought that was yeah. fascinating. Um yeah. I put a period after everything, um, but 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 it's 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 it, it is interesting when you think about what the differences are about what information we have to give in the voice channel that w- because we don't have the visual element, and so it is quite different. And I, I would urge people to push back with anybody who's saying, "Oh no, we just want to duplicate it." It's all right, you know, use use the chat prompts in the voice channel. I'll be fine. Yeah, you know, and there's also. Yeah. There's also really practical stuff. Like if somebody calls and you forward the call to a human, Mm -hmm. that's a seamless transition. If someone's texting and they want to speak to a human over the phone, it's just a different uh, technical implementation and process. So not everything is transferable. Um, It's pretty nuanced, I think. Yeah, perfect. Perfect answers. Perfect answers. Um, I feel like even, you know, if, if people were wanting to explore this, all they would have to really do is compare the Slack discussions that they have as opposed to perhaps video call discussions in their organization and see how different <laughs> things can develop in those two modalities. And it's, yeah, you know, exactly as you're saying, people can hope that they can just, you know, like use one thing everywhere. But yeah, communication is so complex, right? There's so many things we rely on and expect. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. True. Yeah. Super. So this is for 
Wally, please. Is it okay to just keep firing through these as we're doing? Jam through them. Yeah, this is great. Cool. So, Wally, please. Um, from what? Well, sorry, I should give this context. It comes from Kerry Bricks. I've slightly paraphrased this. Um, so she asked, from what you've seen, who usually owns responsibility for conversational AI in large companies? And I re- I've added to that, who would you recommend owns it as well? So that, right. you know, some some useful advice for anyone who's uh, considering this as well. So it's please, a, it's Wally. A great, it's a great addendum. Um, I would say that usually somebody in CX um, in the, in the, or in the contact center um, in that space who wants to get promoted is going to say, I can save $3 million by automating these processes and I'm going to do it. And they get all enthusiastic and then they'll maybe take some courses, they'll read some books and they'll decide that they're going to do this. Yeah. Um, <laughs> The thing that I have seen over and over and over again is that you need executive sponsorship. You have to have the C-level believing that this is something they want to do because it's significant expense. And one of the things that salespeople sometimes learn over time is that a budget to do something on the scale that's necessary for customer service um, is budgeted a year ahead. You know, people have already been going through what's the resources required, what's this. So I think it's under it's important to understand that it's not a quick process. If if a a business has decided they do want to go ahead and do this, um, I would say you need a cross-functional team that includes IT, marketing, um, CX, uh, which is my term for call center, but um and um, who else? Uh, marketing, blah, 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 blah. And, 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 and chief digital officer, if there is one, chief marketing officer, chief information officer, somebody up there in the C-suite who is totally behind this and is going to pin their name to it. Um, and I think that's what I would suggest. And, you know, this feeds into another question that I saw, but I'll wait until you get to that one. Um, but yeah, no that, that 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 would be my that would be my take on it. Is basically it's got to be cross functional, um, and you're going to get and and the responsibility for the actual design has to be super clear because what you'll face, well, certainly in traditional IVR world, and you're going to face it in in in, in AI um, conversation design, is that people are going to want to do the minimum code possible, right? So they're going to ask you to reuse things over and over and over again. It's like, let's have a generalized error prompt that goes er everywhere. Why should we rewire it? And in the old days, it used to be, you know, here are menus, you know, uh, for marketing, press one, for blah, 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 say two, blah, blah. Um, And the thing is that in those menus, when you've performed a task, why would you repeat that task again? If the yeah. user has already done it, so these things should be subtractive, and you know, and and it's it's really about holding your ground as a designer and saying that shortcuts aren't really okay because they will affect the user experience, and over time there will be calls lost, there'll be money lost, there'll be transfers to agents that you don't want, all that kind of stuff. Um, does that help? Absolutely, absolutely. 
Um, Rebecca, any thoughts on that? I co-sign, I co-sign on all of that. Um, it's, it is really tricky. Like, I think this is one of those fields, conversational AI, where a lot of different teams in a large organization are trying to get, get it, use it, kind of be the leaders in the org. Um, and so a lot of times what you see is different teams doing different projects. And then there's always like a point of reckoning in the company of like, where does this live? Um, and I agree with Wally. I'm less concerned about like who my boss is and much more concerned about that cross-functional team. Um, and it's, it's not just cross-functional. It's like collaborative in a meaningful way. I'm working with a team right now that I love and the developers and the designers work together on the data structure. We work together on lots of decisions. We're constantly looking at where our work handshakes. And that's the only way that we're able to build a really good product, but also a scalable product where mm -hmm. they're not refactoring all the time. I'm not dealing with constraints that I didn't ask for. Like having a truly collaborative team, I think is, is the best thing you can have um, no matter who you know, where you're placed at in the org. Super. That, that actually beautifully segues into the next question. <laughs> the funny thing is, I'm not sure I can so much call this a question because it came from uh, someone who called themselves writer and their question was one word. It was just stakeholders. And I was mm -hmm. like, okay, I can interpret that, I think, because I think I feel their pain. <laughs> And as we were just discussing, I think everybody, you know, this is so collaborative. Conversation design, it can touch in so many areas, the technical, marketing, of course, writing, design, UX, uh, and then, you know, going up C-suite, so many people. So it's collaborative. And so, you know, the designers have to listen to clients, perhaps, uh, definitely have to listen to users, find out where their pains are, stakeholders. And so... We, we can struggle with stakeholders. So how can we manage their expectations and how can we perhaps steer them away from ideas that m we can see that might not be the best path to go down? And sorry, that, that was for Wally, yeah. Um, education, education, education. And I would say that when, you know, at Force Partners or VoxGen, what we would always do is go in, insist on a workshop on day one that has the, the executive sponsors in it and um, everybody who's going to be touching the project. And so you get everybody in a big room and you give them some education with some hands-on practice and playing with stuff to get the points across that you're trying to get, get across, you know, the, the, the things about, um, customer centricity, the things about, um, you know, all the, all the ways that, that as you know, we've talked about before that language impacts how people receive information or respond. And, you know, it may be that it's a, a six hour workshop and you only need the executive team in for two hours. You know, you want, you want the, the, the senior stakeholders, maybe. <laughs> Only in for two hours because they won't they won't stay through the whole thing. But you want yeah. them there to get the caveats. We're going to build something fantastic. It won't wash your car for you. It won't walk the dog. But it will do these things really effectively if we design it and build it right. Mm 
um, and just set those expectations really early. Give Rebecca's book to everybody on the project team and tell them to read it. And um, I'll take my cut later. Rebecca. Yeah, yeah, you you definitely are, are uh, going to get a cut. Yeah, and Kathy, uh, you, you put you get Kathy's book too. Um, <laughs> but, but I would I would say that education is really the bottom line of it. If there, if people don't know how this stuff works and don't know about what the caveats are, um, they are going to dream really big, yeah. and they're not going to understand. I mean, I'm still concerned, panicked, worried about hallucination anyway, not just my own, but those of the LLMs. Um, and I, you know, so I, there, there are things that people need to understand that are, that are, that are limitations and opportunities. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I feel, I mean, this is a pain that I feel right. Like the people who have signed the budget deeply misunderstand (laughs) what, what we're going to get out of the, the money in the project. Um, and I also think that stakeholders are really getting this messaging from all of these companies that are saying like, use our platform. You can make a bot in a day. Yeah. They're getting a lot of hype. This is fast now. This is easy now. And it's true that like our, the technology in the time I've been working in this field has gotten like incredible. So it is better, but I just think it's a struggle for a stakeholder to understand, well, it took us a week for my developer to put together a prototype why are you telling me it's going to take a year to get to the next production launch? And it's like, that's a tough, that's a tough story to tell. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you have to teach people. And I think that's something that can burn designers out. Like we're not just doing our job. We're constantly teaching, but as you go you know, forward in your career, you kind of develop your little toolkit of examples and activities that, that, you see people get the light bulb moment. If I give this example, people go, oh, oh, I see. I did a workshop just like the one Wally was describing and had some higher level folks at that workshop and um, had them do prompt writing and do a little training data sorting and then trying to get those things together. And it was a very simple activity, but the one of the PMs that I had been working with afterwards said, I get it now. I didn't. I like didn't get it before, but I get it now. And just even if you can just get people to say, humor me, just spend an hour with me and play around, then that can really help. And um, it's, it's part of the job. Yeah. I, I, you know, the thing that, that struck me, and I think there's a question about this later, but one of the things that always hits me is that when you introduce a cross-functional team, even to the simple idea of persona representing the brand, they go, what? Oh, we never thought of that. And it is, I mean, I, I asked the people at Saatchi's in London once what a positive and a negative brand impression was, was worth financially. And they said, it's a pound either way, you know, positive, pound, negative, Pound. So negative brand impressions carry a financial uh, um, a financial uh, complement with them that can be uh, a problem. Anyway, yeah, there you go. No, I mean, I think all of these arguments are are great and they're all needed in our little toolkits. There was actually, I don't know if you know the designer Elaine Anzaldo. I think she's at Meta now, and she posted mm-hmm. something recently. Like she writes really nice blogs, and one of them was all designers should have a one pager in their back pocket. That's like everything that, uh, 
they need to present to someone to just say, this is why you need me and just have it mm. detailed there in the most concise way. But also, as you're saying, to, to give people the hands-on experience, let them try it. And then suddenly they're like, oh, I get it. This, this is actually very you know, hard to do and requires deep thought and research. Um, yeah, fantastic. So... Now, of course, the obligatory LLM questions. There had to be some. There had to be some. And of course, they're super relevant because everybody wants to know how to do this stuff well. So, um, Rebecca, please. Uh, Again, anonymous uh, asker asked, how to make the best use of LLMs without compromising good design practices? This is a great question. Um, I'm, so this LLM, I'll, I'll do a little quick breakdown. There's like different, these LLMs exist. We've all probably like talked to ChatGPT. Um, and I've seen people do interesting experiments. And there's sort of two sides to this. There's, can you make an LLM be your bot? Can you give a prompt that's good enough so that the ensuing unfolding conversation um, is pretty good? Um, so that is one thing. And then there's this other question of, can we use LLMs to do like part of our work? Like, can we have it write our responses? Can we have it create sample scripts for us? Um, this is a bad one. This is a don't. Can we have it produce our training data? <laughs> um, real customer data is very important. Um, so, so there's, can it do parts of our work? And then there's maybe a third category of, can we combine it into our system so that maybe it handles like, like if there's no matching intent, can it provide an air handling response or can it take over the reflective listening part? Sounds like you're asking about. And the answer is like, it, you can kind of get an LLM to do all that stuff. Um, in the class that I teach, we do a lot of experiments of like doing the work ourselves, writing our prompts, writing our sample scripts, and then having LLMs try to do it. And we're almost always better <laughs> um, for now. Um, so I, I think everybody's in this like space of experimentation. Uh, but I, I do think all the stuff we know as conversation designers is true. We know what a good prompt and re- you know, response looks like. We know how to evaluate a bot to make sure the training data is doing its job. So um, I still feel like I and the person who wants to do these things rather than outsource in some way to an LLM. But um, even in a future system as you know, LLMs will get better as well in future systems where they're maybe doing more of some of that stuff. I'm still the person who can go, this is performing the way we want it, or this is not performing the way we want it. Here's how it needs to get better. And then we, we diagnose from there. So that's kind of where I sit. I worry that uh, I'm starting to sound more and more old fashioned though. I think you have to bring that experience into working with LLMs, right? You have to understand what's going on to be able to see how to improve it. And that's the experience you're bringing to it, you know? Like, I guess someone coming straight into the industry now, going straight into LLMs and being like, I'll be a uh, LLM prompter. Or what's the term that they're using? AI prompter, LLM prompter. Yeah, it's like, you know, that... Which means somebody who does engineering who's always on time. (laughs) (laughs) exactly exactly that's a good language trick yeah you know to 
to bring in this experience means, I think, because also, you know, what we're starting to see, and I know I shouldn't speak too much, but it's just, uh, we're starting to see that there's interesting crossovers where people are using LLMs for their strengths as opposed to NLUs for their strengths. And it makes sense, you know, and you're not going to get far with NLUs and what you could perhaps call traditional conversation design if you haven't learned it, got that experience, you know. Um, So I'm not, you know, I think the the old fashioned, so to speak, voices really need to speak up in this, you know, the the rapid hype of LLMs that we're getting now. Otherwise, uh, these practices might be... Uh, might not, you know, hurt, might not be heard enough. I do have a little anecdote. I gave a talk about LLMs and before the talk, uh, a nice guy came up to me and he was like a d- developer type and said, oh, is conversation design even a thing anymore? And I said, yeah. And I sort of said some stuff and the guy said, um, well, I can do that and I can do that. You know, I can have an LLM do all this stuff. So, and then I was like, well, is your bot like good? And he was like, I don't, I don't know. And I was like, okay. <laughs> so. Um, but it exists. Exactly. <laughs> and it's like, it's, it's easy to make a mediocre, but it is, it is still um, a high effort thing to make a really, really good bot. So. Yeah, um, yeah. And yeah. I, I would add one thing to that, which is that, um, you know, a couple of years ago, I was doing some, stuff where we were training um, a model and we were looking at ways to use it. And one of the things that makes a lot of sense is the LLM is really good at open conversation, right? You can have a really great chat with the LLM and if it's well designed and if it's well, well, well structured, it'll, it'll have a good conversation with you in persona. And that's fantastic. Yeah. When you say, I want to pay my bill, that's an intent. And the LLM can be really good at capturing that intent and then, you know, forcing you through the API to, you know, whatever has to happen. Um, and it's a great hybrid way to do things, right? Mm-hmm. And um, and I think there's always going to be room for that. When <clears throat> When LLMs first started, the conversation design team at Google said to me, okay, um, tell us what we're going to be doing. Um, and I said, well, it's a little bit like John Henry and the steel driving man. I don't know if you know this story in England, but there's a, there's a famous folk tale about when, when they used to hammer the stakes in to the cross ties on the railroad and like put in the, the, the railroad tracks and men used to swing these giant sledgehammers. And then one day somebody came up with a steam machine, steam driven machine that would hammer the stakes in. And John Henry had to race against the steam driven machine where he went wrong was he was going head to head with it, fighting its strength. And he shouldn't have, he should have worked to his strengths. Um, and that's what I tell conversation designers. I just say, you know, you've got a wealth of knowledge. You've got a wealth of experience. Leverage that understanding that there are new tools that you can use, but they're just new tools. They're mm-hmm. just new things to put in your toolkit. Yeah. You know, don't be worried. 
Absolutely, yeah, because he would have been the best person to work with that machine to make sure it's doing the be- the right job, right? Because it will have failed. It will have failed in places. Yeah. Um, yeah. Wally, there's some amazing effects going on. Uh, we had balloons <laughs> and fireworks. Um, I'm not doing them. Wow. The, there's a new like iOS update where this is happening in another place that I work where um, if you do, I don't have it set up, but you do peace signs and there's balloons and then you do a thumbs up and there's fireworks. Like there's different effects that are triggered wow. by like your camera and it is like something you have to turn off, um, which is kind of wild. It's like, no, nobody asked for this feature uh <laughs> that's incredible if you, do, if you do peace science i think the balloons come oh, the oh, wow. so this is just, i have been triggering this how bizarre <laughs> oh my this is an example of people like to opt into features uh such as balloons confetti and fireworks um yeah oh, okay because this is communicating something and you know well, he could have just been saying two and I think not, was. <laughs> not peace. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that doesn't need confetti. That, that's amazing because that interacted into our conversation. Yeah, they really, really should have funny. given you an opt-in. Yeah. yeah. Okay, cool. So I just had to check <laughs> that you were aware. Thank you. <laughs> I thought Rebecca was congratulating me on fabulous answers. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I I I was uh, internally. I'm glad the I'm glad the visuals aligned with it a little bit. <laughs> That's fantastic. Um, so please, Wally, this question is for you. Um, coming from someone who is calling themselves Jinjin sixty three. Jinjin sixty three from Bolton. How are you? <laughs> and so no, uh, they first ask. Time, first time caller. What is it? What do people in the radio always say? First time, long time listener, first time caller. Right. I'll That's take the, the third call from Brooklyn. <laughs> <laughs> and Sorry. so what they would love, no problem at all. No problem unruly. at all. <laughs> it's, it's, it's the best vibe. Be unruly. Um, so please, Wally. How would you? Sorry. Oh, did you say yes or? No, I said you... yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. Cool. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, how would you promote the impact a conversation designer can have when using LLMs? Very closely related to the last question, yeah. but definitely one that many people are asking right now. So, um, I would say if you can. Give me a definition of an implicit versus an explicit confirmation. Then I'm not worried about whether you can carry on and do this. If you don't know the difference between an explicit and an implicit confirmation, again, where's the green book? Oh, um, it's, it's, I guess what I'm trying to say is that um, the conversation designer understands language. The fabric of prompt engineering is language. It's, you know, so the conversation designer, and also I would say there's another discipline that's really, really becoming important in this, and that's content um, content managers, co- you know, content experts, content strategists. And content strategists understand how things go together. And that's really important. And when you are trying to work on prompting an LLM, 
conversation strategists can do it quite well because they understand the order of things. Um, so I would say, you know, I, I, if somebody comes up to you and says, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a plumber, I can, I can, I can do LLM design, you know, um, it's, it's really not that easy. And I would say that, that all of the things around it, it's, it's all great to get an answer out of chat GPT that, that's interesting or fun or whatever, or relating, but what about all the stuff that goes around it? How do you do elegant repair strategies when things go wrong? How do you how do you deal with 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 the interstitial stuff that isn't an open question to the LLM? Somebody has to do that. That's the conversation designer. They have experience in it. Totally. True. And I'll yeah. throw in um, LLMs are not trained on conversation. They're trained on internet content. <laughs> it's not the same thing. Um, and Absolutely. so I think conversation designers are always thinking about like, how can we make a conversation that flows elegantly and efficiently? And we're, we, we know that <laughs> LLMs are not in that, in that space yet. Um, so yeah. They it, will be. yeah. I mean, I'm sure they will be. There will be very clever conversation design G- GPTs that will, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I'm sure we're going there, but yeah, as it stands now, no, this is absolutely fantastic. Fantastic. Rebecca, why don't you just take the galley of your book and put it into chat GPT and then ask <laughs> questions about conversation design? Um, I mean, it can hypothetically can be done. I've actually had this conversation with um, Diana, my co-author, and we decided that we don't, we're not so sure about data practices. Oh, um, I don't mean. I, yeah, I, I just mean in terms of a personal GPT in a in a, in a um, oh, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. like in a uh, um, a, a knowledge base. Yeah, yeah, but I, 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 it's one of these like I don't know if these companies are using the data people are inputting in like a more generalized way. Like I don't know what's in that end user licensing agreement, and I haven't read it. So there's a little hesitation in terms of IP and data. Um, and our publisher, Lou Rosenfeld, was on a podcast talking about this, too. But it is totally possible to take a PDF, add it to a knowledge base and ask questions. And I think people generally who do that get like pretty fine. They get pretty good answers. And that's pretty astounding, um, mm-hmm. like something that used to seem hardly possible at all. Now, just being as simple as uploading PDF. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely a wild west. Now, to your yeah. point about who owns it, what it is, this, that, and the other thing. Uh, a guy who's a, a friend of mine who teaches um, uh, public relations at a university in the Midwest, um, he said to me that the biggest problem that the public relations industry is finding is that when they write something or deliver something or in marketing, a marketing agency, they have to give full ownership of the content to the client, and they can't yeah. do that with LLMs. So it's a real problem for a whole industry that, that really just can't use this stuff. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And there's also a good article in the Atlantic about how a lot of authors um, were able to figure out that their uh, LLMs had been trained on their books on pirated copies of their books that they hadn't consented to. Um, mm. so there's, and this is very much, and I looked at a lot of LLMs recently and a lot of them say, um, 
if you put content into this knowledge base, you it's your responsibility to make sure that you can use that content, which is not a very firm uh, blocker to doing something illegal. So this is definitely like juicy, uh, a juicy area for um, <clears throat> to think about, like from a philosophical perspective and from a like a legal perspective. Yeah, forget about learning to be a conversation designer. Just become a lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> Copyright law. Cool. I think we can stop there. <laughs> <laughs> I think we better. Conversation design is over. We're getting our law degrees now. Yeah. Right. But we can just uh, use an LLM to summarize it for us. It'll be a one page PDF. <laughs> Everything you need to know about law and job done. Oh, yeah. man. I. Mm. I can't wait for the first trial where someone represents themselves and uses chat GPT as their, as their wow. like co-lawyer. <laughs> that's that's going to happen, isn't it? But great for finding precedent. Uh, absolutely. Okay. So we need Ben to get arrested and then uh, he's agreed to try this out for us. After yeah, this, Ben is going to get arrested. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, uh, moving swiftly. <laughs> so, please, Rebecca, another anonymous asker has asked, what are the top tips to optimize a bot? Please. I have these tips. I think sometimes people want something really specific, like, um, this is not what I would say, but people want something like, every sentence should be 20 words or less, you know, like people want these really concrete things. Um, but my, my tips are always like, have you done usability testing with people outside the company that you work for? Um, have, are you actually running tests on your training data? Do you have a regression set of utterances so you can make sure that your changes to your training data are actually improving and not, you know, causing damage to it? Um, those are the sorts of things. Like another tip is like, have you listened to every prompt in the bot's synthetic voice? Just that there's a lot of these things that take time to evaluate and a lot of people don't want to do them. But I think those are the things where you come up with a really robust bot. Um, so I, I think a lot of my tips are always process-based. Another tip is have a QA process, which shockingly does not always exist. It's like, before you do your usability testing, are you sure that you've reduced the number of bugs as best you can? Um, do you have a set of tests that you always run? I'm really like test focused right now because it's something I'm working on in my own work. Um, but yeah, I think these processes are the the way to go. Um, and I, although there is actually a really good book, um, Ahmed Bouzid's newest book with O'Reilly, and it's what's it called the elements of voice first style that is a great book because it does contain a lot of those like like stuff that wally was mentioning implicit versus explicit confirmation how do we structure a sentence so the cognitive load is lower like um there are kind of go-to best practices that are documented and i would i would check ahmed's book because it's really thumbable skimmable readable i really enjoyed it but um yeah to optimize your butt use it all the time yourself and have other people use it and watch them. Yeah. Fantastic. Fantastic. Anything to add, Wally? No, I just, I just want to double click on, on user testing with naive users. 
because that's the only way you're going to really find out if the thing is going to work or not. Because um, even folks in your company, if you do a little cafe study around the, the company, I mean, they know too much. You know, yeah, they yeah. just know too yeah, much. Yeah. Um, so you want, you know, you want Aunt Mildred, you know, go 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 to somebody's Christmas party and ask everybody to try something. <laughs> that's, that's, that's all I add. Yeah. yeah, and what you're saying just there reminds me of when Siri first came out. I lived in Glasgow, and someone who worked at the Apple store came with her iPhone and were like, hey, you can talk to your phone now. And all of us spoke to it with, you know, I, I don't have such a Glaswegian accent, but of course most of the people did, and it couldn't understand anybody. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, mm. But, you know, I guess I, it was... No, sorry. go ahead. I'm sorry, Ben. I didn't mean to interrupt no. you. No, no worries. I'm just saying it was probably early days and they didn't have that training data yet. You know, they didn't have those uh, voice files from Glasgow yet. So we probably improved Siri in our own little way. Well, you've seen <laughs> the, the elevator with the two uh, Scotsmen in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Everybody it's... wants to show me that video. <laughs> I know, I know. Um, I just wanted to ask just a question for you guys. Are we astounded at how good the prosody is of the chat GPT voices? I mean, I've yeah. been arguing against TTS for 20 years until really recently. And I was blown away. I was absolutely blown away. It's pretty. Yeah. I had the same response of, um, just, you know, these voices, they're not very realistic. And we have, you know, we, we want to be all doing SSML and doing all these things to improve. And then, I mean, I've been testing out some voices from um, somebody at the place that I work. Um, there's two companies that I've been really impressed with, Eleven Labs and Play HT. I don't know anybody who works there. I've just been playing around with their voices. And they're so, like, exactly what Wally said, the prosody, the, the pronunciation, the rhythm, the spacing, the emphasis, all of that is so realistic. And the big beef with synthetic voices is that they're higher cognitive load. They're harder to mm -hmm. understand because of that unrealistic, over-steady, um, unnuanced prosody. And now it's like, oh, my gosh, this problem is solved, yeah, uh, which is really amazing. Yeah, agree. It is. It is. Yeah, cool, cool. Um, okay, fantastic stuff again. This mm -hmm. one is for you again, Rebecca. And so, <clears throat> sorry, Martina asks, our goal is, uh, sorry, start again. Our goal is decreasing the live agent handoff rate. How would you recommend we go about it? <laughs> I mean, this is sort of the the question. Um, and I think there's so many answers to this. I'll just give one concrete one. Um, if you have a bot that can actually do a bunch of stuff that like if self-service is actually achievable with your product, um, then making sure that people know the bot is very smart right away is what you need to do to like build their trust. Mm -hmm. So you can do that in a lot of ways. You can give examples of stuff the bot can do. The bot can sound, can, you can use a very realistic voice so that people get an instinctive sense that it's more like human-y. Um, you can um, 
use data and give really contextual responses. So like as, as many signals as you can give the user as many signals as possible to show that this bot actually does stuff. Cause most people are used to kind of old school. It didn't understand me. It's not what I wanted, that kind of thing. Um, I think that's my general high level strategy. It's not an easy one, eh? Not an easy one to answer. No. Yeah. And I, I would I would I would throw in uh, from time to time the implicit confirmation. You know, the the old devil implicit confirmation. Oh, you want to pay a bill? Right. Let me get you over there. Yeah. Or let me do this. Right. I, mean, I mean, one of the ways to do it is to get rid of all the, the call center agents so there aren't any. <laughs> And that's the thing, though. I think I have a collection of screenshots of tweets of people railing against this one specific problem, um, which is you try to solve the problem yourself in the app or online, and then you call the number. And while you wait, there's a recorded message that says, did you know you can do all these things online? And it's like, I would love to. I could not. And now I can tell, like, I think it is a little bit cruel for systems. Some systems you can tell that they're actually impeding you from getting to a person. And that's almost why the system exists. I think that's frustrating for people. I think, um, yeah, I, I think it is, it is unkind to people the way a lot of these systems are designed to do that. Although it is almost always a business goal to do that. So that's a little bit of a tension that I experience with this field. But you can, again, you know, looking at the 90-10 rule or the 80-20 rule, take the low-hanging fruit, get rid of the low-hanging fruit in your automation, and let anything that requires any kind of judgment go to the agent. Because you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna knock off a tremendous amount of what would have gone to the agent if you just effectively automate, you know, in a good way. Um, and don't try and do the things that you can't do well. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Fantastic, fantastic. Uh, so we have two more. This one is for you, Wally. Um, this one comes from Melini Monique. I don't know if you know her, but she's like one of the most enthusiastic people I've ever met. Lovely, lovely person. Um, and so she says, uh, I want to fully emerge into the conversational AI field as someone who specializes in persona development for chatbots, social bots, and digital humans. And she asks, who is training in this particular area? Wow. Well, in 1999, I started a department at Nuance called Persona Design and Production. And Basically, I believe very, very, very firmly that who you're talking to is is as least important as what they say. And those two things have to be married. Um, Who's doing training in this area? Um, I would say that, you know, you know, I've got some videos online, but the best resources are looking into the foundations of character design. Um, this comes from film. I mean, one of the wonderful things we had at Google was a bunch of people who came from Pixar in, in character design, and they really knew their stuff. Um, you know, it's, it's uh, shout out to Emma Coates. But um, I, would, I would say that, that 
learning the fundamentals, the, the, the archetypes, the, you know, understanding how character is put together and what reinforces it and how, how, how it's not fragile, but it's got to be reinforced. It's got to be, it's got to be. And that doesn't mean a lot of chat. It doesn't mean a lot of, 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 you know, you can have a really strong persona that's very terse and only says very few things. And, but, but yeah, I mean, that's, I, I, look, at, look into character development for film, television, uh, literature, because um, that's going to be a, a good resource. Yeah, absolutely. The only thing I'm thinking to add, I mean, I think that's totally true. Like knowing how to design, to create a character that this been known, those fields exist. Those fields are very old. So um, looking to them for the source material, I think is absolutely the right advice. But I think that what conversation designers need to do is figure out, okay, we, we and while he was talking about this, we have this persona. How does it manifest? It comes through from all these choices, how the writing is or isn't, the the word choice, the prosody, the voice itself. There are all of these have a cumulative effect of communicating the persona. So it's one thing to design a persona on paper and another, how do we make it manifest so that people actually interact with our thing and get the persona that we want them to. So there's sort of two sides to the coin. Yeah, that's great. That's great. You know, you can, can have a design that's for a super helpful bot and then people get, they struggle in the actual conversation and that's completely undermined, you know, the, the persona. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, and I want I want to just put one more one more point in. Um, we used to take a lot of flack about how deeply we would go into persona definition. Um, I believe that the best thing to do is to have a fairly deep biography, fairly deep backstory. I mean, it's horses for courses. You may not always need all these elements, but fairly deep backstory, fairly deep biography. We used to go down to the level of. If she was from Peoria, Illinois, what were the high schools in Peoria that she might have gone to? And why would she have gone to those high schools? What neighborhood did she live in? And we'd make lookbooks with images that represent not the persona, but where they lived, what they do. We had one for a a major uh, drug retailer where we created this sort of nurse practitioner persona. And we showed a picture of her refrigerator with the calendar for the kids' soccer matches on it, or football, um, and 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 the, the dance recital calendar, and you know, yeah. it just adds verisimilitude to, to to the whole thing. And I'm not saying that you're going to hear all of these things in every prompt, but it gives you a sense of who you're writing, and you'll know right away if you write a prompt that doesn't fit. Um, and if your error recovery says, I'm sorry, I didn't understand, um, you're going to know that that's completely wrong. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's it's immersing in the the persona, isn't it? You have these references to help you immerse into it so that you, you get closer to it, so that you can express whatever you need in a specific scenario, right? Am, well, I, am I getting really, you right? Yeah, and a really good trick, aside from making sample dialogues that you voice with the persona, another good thing is um, we used to do monologues. So this is a conversation that the persona is having with a friend at a bar 
about absolutely anything about, you know, babysitting, about, you know, problems with, you know, whatever, but just some stuff. So it's not just how can I help you? You know, so yeah, you're yeah. not testing it against prompts. You're testing it against a corpus of, of, of stuff. You know. Yeah, fantastic. Rebecca, did you want to want to add anything to that? No, it sounds like a lot more fun than, <laughs> than what I than what I usually do. I mean, I think there is a lot of value in it, but I Wally said to go back to what Wally said about a persona can be terse. Um, I think a lot of people and I, I think it was Jonathan Bloom who has a tweet that we put in the book and said like people think that persona equals charismatic, <sighs> but that's not that's not the equivalent equivalent that's not the thing we're trying to say. <laughs> um, what we're trying to do is like choose the persona that gets the job done um, mm-hmm. and have that be apparent. So I think that's just like a final tip. Like you can absolutely have a persona that's terse or a persona that's boring. If that's the job it needs to do to support the like user's experience. And test them, test them, test them, test them, put, put together three, and test them with users and see what's most appropriate for the task at hand and what they, what they resonate with. Because when we did a job once for a credit card company who needed a collections bot and their ingoing expectation was that this would be like a heavy who would go, mm-hmm. um, you know, your, your card is overdue. Um, do you have any plans to do anything about that? And what we found out was that a young woman who was completely non-threatening and warm and helpful, raised a ton more money out of delinquent accounts than did anything sterner. And it was because the business didn't think that would be the case. And they wanted to go with heavy, heavy, heavy. And we just proved it to them with numbers. So, Yeah. yeah. Fantastic. Fantastic. It's challenging the assumptions, right? Yeah. And, and that's the other thing I saw in one of your other questions. I just wanted to pick up on um, data. As Rebecca said a couple of times today, if you can show the stakeholders, we tested these things. This is what came out of the testing. This is what, you know, what, what didn't come out of the testing. That's the only way to get your point across to stakeholders. You've got to show them something. Yeah. And- mm-hmm. Super, super. So yes. we're on to... On to the final one. Um, This one is for Rebecca, please. Um, So, anonymous asker, let's call them Anonymous, asks, uh, I'm struggling to do proper user research on a chatbot. The samples on qualitative research are low, and on open feedback from users, the quality of the feedback is abysmal. I find it hard to understand what actually drives our user Uh, sorry, users, and what motivates them. How can I get more concrete insights from user research? This is such an interesting question. And I have follow-up questions that we can't answer, but um, I'm assuming that the person was saying that like the open feedback they get from users is abysmal. I'm assuming they mean that the quality of the feedback, like I wonder if they mean something like, oh, we have the little thumbs up, thumbs down. Was this response helpful? Or we have the, on a scale of one to five, did this answer your question? those kinds of automated things. Um, I think I don't love those automated things. I don't think they really produce uh, 
in my experience, they just don't produce a lot of insight. Um, I don't even find them a very reliable pulse, but I, you know, I have a particular slant there. But in terms of like the research that we can do, I like the classics. I mean, there is um, user interviews. There's usability testing that's synchronous where you're watching someone use the product. Um, those are always really useful. We don't have to do them year round for a whole decade, but um, you can learn a lot from a few cycles of of those things. Um, so I'm kind of curious what the uh, it, what other things the person has done. But if you haven't done the like user interviews to understand um, what people are doing, how they're trying to solve the problem, what the root of the problem is, how they feel about your product if they've used it. Um, doing that is <clears throat> is well, well worth the time. And um, I'll pass to Wally because I'm sure Wally has more <laughs> more uh, to add, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> um, all I was going to add was um, you raise a really interesting point, which is when you do Wizard of Oz testing, for example, you'll get some wise guy stakeholder saying, well, you only tested 15 people. Um, I want something more quantitative. I want 2,000 people to uh, respond to this Wizard of Oz test. And you just say, well, you know, trending comes out of seven, eight, and you'll get really good information. If you have 15, you're, you're, you're rich. Um, but, you know, for some types of testing, it, you get pushback from stakeholders because they don't think it's enough. And what you're trying to tell them, it's about the quality of the information. It's not about the quantity of the information. Um, you know, if everybody got through this out of 15 people without a problem and felt really good about it, we got a good product. We can pretty well count that we got a good product. Now we'll do A-B testing with the actual user group out there in the world. And we'll put, you know, 1% of our traffic through it and see how it goes against, you know, whatever is currently there. Um, but yeah, but don't be intimidated with stakeholders who insist on huge numbers of, 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 um, of respondents in Wizard of Oz tests. It's just not necessary. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I also, um, my undergrad degrees in chemistry and I worked in an analytical chemistry lab. And so like designing experiments, I'm like a little too fierce about it. And I'm like, <laughs> we need to design our experiment for the question we're trying to answer. So if we're trying to answer a question about people's reactions, people's motivations, that's a qualitative usability testing process. If we're trying to get volume and see what are the most popular intent pathways and where do people get stuck, that's a different test. So um, starting with your research question and then going, well, how do we design a test to get the answer to that question is something I think it's really important. And um some information is better than none. Mm -hmm. um, I'm constantly surprised by what I thought would work, and then it didn't. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's one of the joys of being a, like a UX person. So um, the even doing a little bit of testing with a couple people who aren't you or aren't your team is more information than you had before. Mm -hmm. Great answer. Super, super. Well, that's everything. And I've had you here for about an hour and 20. So you have been absolutely fantastic, both of you. Thanks so much. And, you know, now we've got 
a wealth of useful feedback to give back to all of those people who asked these questions. So thank you, Rebecca, and thank you, Wally. That's fantastic. Thank you, Rebecca. Thank you, Ben. And thank you, Voxworld. Yeah, and thank you, everybody who wrote in. That was like an incredible sampling of questions too, but yeah. Yeah, totally, totally. It's great to, to it's kind of slightly checking the pulse of where people are, you know, where they're at, what they're feeling, what they're struggling with. And so, you know, all of these people have now got their answers. So that's great. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. And we're going to go off and get our law degrees. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and apparently I'm going to get arrested. Do I still have to do that? That's step one. Yeah. Well, <laughs> rich pageant. We got an A-B test. Ben, we need, we need a chat GPT lawyer, and then we need one of us to be a lawyer, and then we'll do an A-B test to see which... Oh. Lawyer gets Ben the lowest sentence. You know, yeah, but then one thing that I, I did do the other day, which I, you know, I don't know if you know these books, but Infinite Jest by David David Foster Wallace and mm-hmm. Gravity's Rainbow by Thomas Pynchon, and I asked ChatGPT to write a play with these two characters, with with sl- the, the the main characters of both of these books by different writers and write a play about them meeting and discussing their views on life. And it did an incredible job. Wow. It did a remarkable job. It was, and it was in the voice of the writers. It was really good. Anyway, that's my little anecdote for today. Maybe the lawyer will get Ben out of jail. I know. Yeah. But, I'm but just what you're... About the therapist. Sorry? I'm just scared about the, the, the LLM therapist. Oh, yeah. I don't want to see that soon. (laughs) There are risks. There are risks. Um, Yeah. So I I need to go get arrested. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. I'm going to stay out of trouble then. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks to you both. This has been great. You too. Thank you. Thanks. Bye bye, y'all.